The following is a paid presentation. The views expressed do not necessarily represent those of the staff and management of Shiawassee Radio. I don't like seeing guilty people get off. But I will not sleep at night if I see innocent people doing time. This is your cell. This is your bunk. This is The Jail Visit on Shiawassee Radio. Live from the Cofield Oil and Propane Studios. Here's attorney Bill Amadeo. So my first day in Michigan, I had my car broken into, windows smashed, and a watch was taken. <laughs> it was going to be a sign of things to come. But, you know, you're in law school. And our class, I think, had like 1,250 people. It was crazy. At the time, it was the largest law school class in the history of law schools. And I remember... Dean Paul Zielinski, he said, look to your left, look to your right, because only like three or four hundred of you are going to graduate. And that was interesting, because I just left bartending at Tropicana, and I'm in Lansing now, and I'm thinking, well, I'm going to make it through. And we had this, like, two-day orientation, it was called Jumpstart. And you coolieites from back then can remember that. And Jumpstart, there were teachers from Intro to Law and all this other stuff. And they were going to tell us what to do. And at the end of day two, we had the Nelson-Denny test. And the Nelson-Denny test was this test they made you take. And it was going to potentially be a predictor of your law school aptitude. And I had my results. And apparently I didn't do well on this test. And Dr. Wilson from the ARC, the Academic Resource Center, called me in with a bunch of other people. And the only way to describe Dr. Wilson, she was... As brilliant as she was beautiful. And for those of you who know Dr. Wilson, you know where I'm going with that one. She had like this weird voice. And I'm not even a lawyer, but I know what makes good lawyers. And you don't have it. You're not cooly material. You are not cooly material. She told me that the educational system in New Jersey was not as good as the educational system in Michigan. She goes, and if I were you, I would go to a trade school. She says, maybe you'll be a good mechanic. Now, if you know me, because a mechanic would be far worse than almost anything in the world. I don't know what the hell to do. She says, what did you do before law school? I told her I was a bartender. And she said, the world needs bartenders. You should go back to Jersey and bartend. You'll never make it through law school. And I looked at her, and I started laughing. She said, I don't find this funny. You're the one that's going to go into financial aid debt. And I said, trust me, I'll get through Cooley. Because my Nelson Denny test was not good, she made me take extra classes. She used to browbeat you. She was just a miserable person. When she left, when she retired, which was like my third year of law school, they were doing a collection for her. And I remember I said, can you break a nickel or not? And not too many people got the joke. Yeah, Patricia Wilson I despise. I had three classes at that point. 
Krimlo, Norman Fell. Torts with Charles Palmer. Contracts won with John Taylor. And I had study groups and intro to law on Friday night. So about week three, the union went on strike back in Jersey. And when I left, it wasn't going to be a strike. And the strike in 1999 lasted three days. This one started to drag on. And this one guy who was like a mentor to me, he remember he said to me, well, we're going to be on strike a while, so you should drop out of law school and come back home. Now, if I dropped out of law school, week three in or whatever, it would have financial aid debt. I don't know how long that strike was going to go on, so there was a lot of guilt put on me. So I just threw myself into my work. And first term of law school, a lot of bullshit. Instead of teaching students what's going to be on the final and how you're supposed to do things, they make you do these stupid briefs. And you spend so much time on these briefs as opposed to practicing multiple choice and writing essays. You know, you think you got to do these outlines and these briefs and that's what's really going to make you a good law student. So at Norman Fell and Krim, I went up to Fe Professor Fell my first day of class and I shook his hand. And I asked him about the Gary Gilmore case. Because the Gary Gilmore case always intrigued me. Gary Gilmore was the guy in the late 70s who killed um, Max Jensen and Ben Bushnell. And he got death. Penalty was death. Firing squad. And he actually brought the death penalty back to America. It was the Gary Gilmore case. And I thought this crim law professor and I going to hit it off. And I put my hand out to shake it. He kind of ignored me. That was a sign of things that come with Norm Fell. Norman Fell would be my first term professor. And he would also be my advisor in the Innocence Project. And the Innocence Project was my third year of law school. Um, I had him for crim law in my first term of law school. And I could tell you, first term third year or today, <clears throat> my opinion of Norm Fell is the same. I think he's somebody who likes to read his own press, even though he doesn't get a lot of press. I think he was a horrible professor. He gave me a D in crim law, and he couldn't read my handwriting, because I did pretty well in the multiple choice, and he just wouldn't read my handwriting, and he claims that he did. And he said to me, you'll never make as a criminal lawyer. You did lousy on my test, and I grade hard to get rid of the weak. And you're the weak. Okay. And it's kind of funny. With Fell, there's been times I wanted to email him. Because some of the shit he said to me throughout the years at Coley. Belittling me and say I didn't have what it took. Well, Normie. Check out the scoreboard, bro. Norm Fell, in my opinion, destroyed a lot of young lives. And he's a guy, in my opinion that was a brutal professor because he couldn't cut it in the real world. Don't like the man. Never like the man if he's watching it. I don't like you, bro. And I'll put my crim stats against yours any f***ing day of the week. You said I couldn't make it. You were f***ing wrong, dude. So wrong. Between you and some ass from New Jersey and Dr. Wilson, I almost f***ing thought about throwing in the towel. But it's good to be sitting here 
as you stalk my Facebook profile when I see under people you may know. And every time I win a case, I think a little bit about Norm Fell. Take that D and shove it up your ass. And any time you want to debate publicly on crim law, you let me know, bro. We'll do it live and sell f***ing tickets and eat popcorn. Bill Amadeo from McManus and Amadeo and Grable and Associates. And today is the first episode of the jail visit. Talking about issues of the day. Today, we're going to talk about three big topics. The topics of today are going to be number one, the danger of talking to the police without a lawyer present. This is what we like to call at McManus and Amadeo and Grable and Associates your get into jail free card. <laughs> number two will be trial by media. We'll talk about media cases and how they could play a role to help or hurt the criminal defendant. And number three, different language of crim law by county. Um, the way you practice a case in Wayne County is not the way you should practice a case in Washington. The way you practice a case in Washington is not the way you should practice a case in Shiawassee. A few days ago, or maybe a week ago, I had a Facebook post, and I put in big bold letters, do not talk to the police without your lawyer present. Let's talk about this. From a young age, guys, we're always told that the police are there to protect society. And I think, as a general rule, police get a lot of bad rap. You know, cops do have a tough job. Obviously, part of my career has been banging heads with the police. But before I was a criminal defense lawyer, I was going to be a New Jersey State Trooper. That was part of the game plan. And I have a lot of family in law enforcement. And I know Dan Chelbos and people like that. I respect the badge. Respect the badge, respect the gun, respect the responsibility. Here's the deal. If you're questioned or a suspect in a crime, you should do the following. You tell the police, I'm invoking my right to remain silent. I want a lawyer present. And I didn't do anything wrong. Before your Mirandize, there's something, and I'm going back to my third term of law school right now for you legal gurus. Pre-Miranda silence can be used against somebody, which means before the individual is in custodial interrogation, not answering a question by the police can actually help bolster a prosecutor's case. So when you're asked if you were involved in a crime, what you say, and do it in this order, I did not commit a crime. I'm invoking my right to remain silent, and I want my counsel. What you did there was you invoked your Fifth Amendment rights, your Sixth Amendment rights, and your Fourteenth Amendment. And the Fourteenth Amendment is like the Uber driver driving the Fifth and Sixth to the states. You got to cover that. Don't engage in conversation. And if you do decide you want to talk to the police, you should only do so after your lawyer has instructed you to do so. Nine times out of ten, talking to the police is a bad idea. Michelle says, why say I didn't commit a crime? Don't use that exact verbiage. I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't commit a crime. The reason why, Michelle, is I want a denial coming up. I want a complete denial to, number one, put doubt in the investigation. 
and two, not have your silence used against you if it gets to trial or preliminary examination. If you just sit there and simply not say anything, there's a preference that maybe this individual committed a crime. I want that denial coming out and then invoking your rights. And that's why we do that. As opposed to sitting like a potted plant, I want you to invoke your silence after aggressively defending your innocence. And that's why you say, I did not commit a crime or I didn't do anything wrong. So that's the answer to that question. In certain counties, and I'll use, there's one prosecutor in Washington I could tell you who I feel is a very good prosecutor, but when you don't talk to the police, they will charge you for not speaking. And I know a prosecutor in Macomb County who, she'll also use that preference. Well, the defendant didn't talk to the cops, so they must have something to hide. You gotta remember this. There's a presumption of innocence in every case, and people forget about that. Nine times out of ten, you are better off not discussing anything with the police. However, there's been times when I know that a case is trial-bound, even in the investigation stages. And if I feel I have an innocent client, I will go down there to the police station, possibly with a past polygraph in my hand, past private poly. We'll talk about polygraphs a little bit later. That's one of the questions that came in. And I'll let the jury know, you know what? My client went down and actually spoke to the police with me present. Had a case in Wayne County not too long ago. It was a juvenile case. And I called the officer in charge. And I told the OIC that my client is willing to come talk to you, but I need to be present. And he put in the police report that the defendant refused to come down to the police station. Well, he lied in the report. I recorded the call, which you're allowed to do. Case got dismissed. What do we learn from this? Well, learn the following. A lot of times when the police want to talk, they're doing it for two reasons. One, they don't have enough to charge a defendant yet. So the feeling is, if I get a confession out of the individual, I'll build the case. And number two, if I know I'm going to get a charge, I can maybe bolster the case for the prosecution. The job of the police is supposed to get to the truth. Unfortunately, what happens far too often, especially with young defendants, is they will go down there to the police station and either, number one, try to talk their way out of a situation or to believe, well, hey, I'm innocent. What do I have to worry about? Look up the Central Park Five or look up the West Memphis Three. Look up making a murderer. I mean, there's a lot of things that the defendant has to worry about. A lot of times a defendant, especially a young defendant, could have mental health issues too. And the officer is not qualified to determine the competency of that defendant. I think Brendan Dassey is a great example of this. That kid has a lot of issues. He has mental health issues. He thought after confessing to a murder, or should I say the police creating a confession, he was going to go back to school and take a test that day. In essence, he talked himself into potentially a lifetime of incarceration. You have to respect the badge, but you cannot assist the police in doing their job 
because more often than not, the police are under the impression that when they're interviewing someone, they're interviewing a guilty person. They're not looking at it objectively. In certain communities, the race component plays a role. Black defendants will have a much more difficult time than white defendants. In other communities, like if it's a CSC investigation, anybody who tells you that a CSC is going to be investigated fairly is somebody who's never litigated a CSC. Just because somebody claims something happened does not mean they're guilty of it. If I believed somebody was guilty of rape, I would not defend them. I've had family members that have been victimized. I would not defend them if I believed that. A lot of the cases that come in, I truly believe in these people's innocence. And I could believe in them for a number of reasons. One, a relationship going sour. Civil litigation against somebody. They pass the private poly. I mean, sometimes when I take a CSC case, I will make them do a polygraph with Andrew Longusky, who in my opinion is the best polygrapher in the state. And they have to pass the test before I take their check. That's how I feel about that. I don't want to defend a guilty person. Obviously, I've defended guilty people before. I need to see something redeeming about the individual. And that's my thought process. But sometimes when you already went to speak to the police, you know, the police already drew an inference on their own. And the inference is not going to help you. Don't ever believe that... I, because I'm an innocent person, me just telling the truth to the police is going to set me free. That's not the case, guys. Talking to the police is not smart. It just isn't. Do not help yourself end up at the Michigan Department of Corrections. Quite often, and I've seen this in Wayne County a lot, they'll get one person's side of a story without even trying to interview somebody. Um, I had a case I wanted a prelim not that long ago. Guy said his ex-wife stole money from him. It was a ridiculous charge. We wanted the prelim, and one of the reasons we won is because the cop never even tried to interview the defendant. They took one side of the story. When the police want to interview a defendant, that is their obligation to do so. They have to make the effort. Do not help facilitate your own prosecution. The exception to this, guys, is drinking and driving cases. In Michigan, we are an implied consent state. And that means if you refuse to take a breathalyzer, you will lose your license. In that situation, if you're ever suspected of drinking and driving, what I want you to do is say to the officer the following, my license and or registration is in the glove compartment. May I get that? Record this on your phone. Put it on top of where the steering wheel would be. Agree to the breathalyzer. Do not make that situation worse. Do not answer any questions other than... Don't even say, how much have you had to drink tonight? Just say, officer, I agree to the breathalyzer. Don't help build their case. But in that situation, do not do a flat define, I want my lawyer. That's the one time because we have an implied consent statute. And implied consent means the police have a right to do the breathalyzer in Michigan. You know, other than that, other than the drinking and driving, 
do not be overly cooperative. The Jail Visit with attorney Bill Amadeo from McManus and Amadeo. Connect with McManus and Amadeo at McManusAmadeo.com or call 800-392-7311. This is The Jail Visit on Shiawassee Radio. Josh Champlain close friend, one of the best writers in the state of Michigan. I don't, Josh does not fall into this category. Kim Russell, in my opinion, does not fall into this category. But I've been reading some articles lately in certain newspapers we won't mention, and it's amazing some of the quotes I made without ever getting a call from a reporter. Um, that's what we call yellow journalism. If I said that I expect many more charges to come against my client you the journals are supposed to say is it true that there's other charges coming against your client and then quote me properly by saying i believe in my client's innocence but i'm told there's other charges coming which we will fight when a journalist selectively takes a piece of a statement and helps assist the prosecution the conviction that is bs that's just wrong and we're seeing that a lot. The journalist, and I was a journalist for years, was never on Josh's level, but I wrote professionally throughout law school. Journalism supported my aunt and my mom while I was in law school. I believe the journalist has a tough job. But as a journalist, you have an obligation. The obligation is to report objectively. You know, you cannot simply say that the individual is charged with X amount accounts of CSC without giving the backstory. You should not say that, by the way, there's civil litigation going on, and if an innocent kid gets convicted, the alleged victims are going to make millions of dollars. To leave those parts out of a statement is highly dangerous, it's prejudicial, and it could lead to motions to change venue. Changing venue is simply not an easy thing. You have to show that your client has been prejudiced. But here's the one thing I see defense lawyers not doing. Here's the one problem. Um, Old school always said that you don't talk to the press. When a reporter calls you and you refuse to answer the call, in my opinion, you're doing your client a disservice. Because it's almost showing that you're scared. Now, the rules of ethics tell us there's limitations on what we can say to the press. And believe me, um, there'll always be some limitations on what I say on Facebook Lives or when I'm talking to the media. I'm not going to catch a grievance for violating a rule. But the rules do say you can advocate for your client in the media, especially when the media has convicted your client before any evidence has been presented. And I'll do that till I'm blue in the face. I'm not going to discuss details of a case, but I will certainly discuss that I believe my client's innocent, and I will give hypotheticals that should make the jury think, hey, what the hell's going on here? I'm seeing too many cases where the media is getting half the story. Let's be clear about something. The arresting police agency and the prosecution should not be providing material to the press. If the press wants to show up to court and hear an arraignment 
or read a motion that's made for public knowledge. That's their right. That's their job. Hell, that's their obligation. But when one side of the equation provides information, the information's always going to be slanted towards that one side. That's not fair. You know, I know as a defense counsel, if I made my case in the media, I would be disbarred. The same rule should apply to the prosecution. We need to be under the same set of rules. And, you know, and one, one thing, I was talking to a good friend of mine today, and we were reviewing a case together. We were looking at some evidence. And it was clear that the prosecution in this county, which was not Washington, by the way, and, you know, I'm in 16 different counties, so you can't charge somebody with a CSC and claim there's video of it, and then the video shows nothing. You can't do that. And if you do do that haphazardly, you should be charged with a crime. I don't feel prosecutions done unlawfully should get a free pass. That's more of a question for the legislation. But, you know, when you charge somebody with a crime, they're never the same. They're not. I get a kid hide and no jail. If I get somebody's case dismissed, they still went through the hell of having to lose sleep every night. Their families went through the torture. They paid me. Probably a significant amount of money, depending on the case. Their life's been altered. And the joy that they may have from enjoying their freedom is always going to be somewhat clouded by the hell they endured. I truly believe if somebody committed a crime, the prosecution should study, make sure they have their ducks in a row, and charge. Because if prosecutors and criminal defense lawyers both did their jobs, we would just be talking about sentencing all day long because proper cases would be charged. I told a prosecutor yesterday in a case, they said they had video of my client doing something. And the cops didn't have the video, but they said they had it. And I put on the record, if that video exists, I will plead my client guilty as charged today and argue to keep this individual out of jail and prison. We'll figure out a plea, but I will not go to trial if you have this evidence. However, if you don't have that evidence, and you claimed you did, and a warrant was issued based upon that evidence, and somebody's life was potentially compromised based upon evidence that did not exist, that's a problem, guys. Here's a question from the audience. When will the prosecutor be responsible for our fee? That's an interesting question. Because in civil litigation, if you bring a frivolous action, attorney fees go on the other side. That's a question for the legislator. That's a good question, though. So when you're dealing with the media, when things get leaked to the media, you better make sure, if you're the prosecution, that you actually have the evidence to support that leak. I'm thoroughly convinced, and believe me by this, guys, when I say this, I'm convinced many criminal defense lawyers do not look at the evidence. They just take the word of someone. I don't see them foia things. I don't see them watching videos. 
when they get evidence on evidence.com, which doesn't work half the time, they just accept what the prosecution said. If we're going to be charged with protecting somebody's freedom, we better work hard. You know, we better, if we're going to take the money and take the case, we need to accept the responsibility for that. And if you're going to tell the media that there's evidence, video evidence, that somebody committed something, show me the evidence, authenticate it, and let's have a different discussion. I don't like seeing guilty people get off. But I will not sleep at night if I see innocent people doing time. And the media can play a big role in that. Build those relationships with the media, guys. The Jail Visit with attorney Bill Amadeo from McManus and Amadeo. Connect with McManus and Amadeo at McManusAmadeo.com or call 800-392-7311. This is The Jail Visit on Shiawassee Radio. I was in Shiawassee the other day. And I watched this lawyer yap to the courts about their trial schedule and how they have they don't have to explain themselves to the court let me be clear you do have to explain yourself to the court if you take over a case that is set for trial shortly you need to do the following you need to number one call the court and see if they're okay with you taking it over don't just think of yourself because somebody's swiping a credit card. For two, call the prosecutor. Professional courtesy. I'm going to take this matter over. And number three, you got to remember this, guys. The court's time is more important than your time. Don't ever forget that. The Constitution is supposed to be our Bible. And the court are the churches where the Bible is taught. That's a way to put it. And when you disrespect that court, you don't have a right to be in this field. Now, if there was no trial set yet, take the case if you want it. But you cannot put your needs over the needs of the court and your client. No matter how good of a lawyer you are, if you're taking a case over late in the game, you could be doing your client a disservice. Okay, you have to coordinate. You know, and if a prosecutor doesn't get back to you, that's on them. But you should always try to extend that professional courtesy. And taking over a case in Wayne County is going to be different than taking over a case in Branch County or Shiawassee County or Lapeer. Okay, the bigger the community, the more, or I should say the less restrictive professional courtesy is going to be. In Wayne... If we have an out-of-county individual, out-of-custody individual, I should say, you might not get the trial for a year or two. Wayne County is that backed up. Shiawassee or Branch, you got to respect the court's docket more than you would need to in Wayne County. Smaller community, bigger restrictions, you need to talk to the court. It's not fair to the administrators. It's not fair to the court. And most importantly, guys, it's not fair to your client to put your client in a disadvantageous situation, all right? And this is not some great novel I'm talking about. This is just common sense, okay? Professional courtesy costs you nothing. 
if you don't know the language of the court you're going to, then you should stay the hell out of that county. Said it before, I'll say it again. Washington is different than Wayne. Wayne is different than Macomb. Macomb is different than Jackson. Jackson's different than Shiawassee. Shiawassee's different than Kent. Kent's different than Branch. You need to know the language if you're going to be able to effectively communicate. And words are our stock and trade. I have seven questions that came in. I'll answer those questions now. Question one that came in from an email. And when you send these questions, and I'm not going to put your name out there, there will be a cloak of privacy, okay? But I will answer these. And by the way, if you have a question, I guarantee you there's six or seven other people have the exact same question. So feel free. There's no charge for these, but let's go through them. Number one, I'm being investigated for a crime. The police want me to do a polygraph, and I'm innocent. Should I do a police polygraph if I'm innocent? Short answer, no. Here's why. You have no right to a lawyer at a polygraph. And I'm guessing that if you and the officer are told about polygraphs, you've already engaged in conversations, which is probably needs to be stopped right now. What you should always do is take a private polygraph first. Um, I would highly recommend Andrew Longusky. Neil Myers also a very good polygrapher. But you want to take a private polygraph with somebody that's respected in that county. The reason why I'm a big fan of Linguski is because he ran the Michigan State Polygraph Unit for a long time, and he's retired now, so he's universally respected. In Washington, Neil Myers is a highly respected name. And you take the private poly. You see how that private poly goes. Sometimes in the investigation stage, if you pass a private poly, that might be enough to kick a case. The prosecution will generally have a problem because you're paying the polygrapher, but if you're paying a credible polygrapher like a Lunguski, you're not paying for results, you're paying for a tough test. I've never seen somebody pass a Lunguski polygraph test that cannot pass a police test. But the problem with the police test, in my opinion, going in there cold is, and they call it virginized. Virginized means somebody, and it's not always virginized, but virginized is a concept when somebody has no prior criminal history. And the cops can sense that, and you go and you take a police polygraph. Well, you're virginized, meaning you have no experience, so you're thinking, well, hell, I could take the test. Well, while you're in there, you might be there for four hours. They may try to compromise you. I know there's one particular Michigan State polygrapher. I wouldn't let him walk my dog, let him do a police polygraph. I've seen this guy write out confessions for people that were completely innocent and tell the people, hey, they could go home. If you just sign this confession, you go home. Well, a few weeks later, they're banging down your door with a warrant. No, it, this is like talking to the police on steroids. Do not just go in and take a police polygraph until you have taken a private polygraph. It gives the police a chance to go on a fishing expedition. If you want to talk further, I mean, you contact me via email. You're not a client right now. I don't know if you're being represented by counsel, pre-charge. And I'm not going to... You should always talk to your lawyer about these things. But I'm going to tell you point blank. 
I think it's a bad idea to do a police polygraph without doing a private polygraph first, and I always think it's a danger to expose yourself to four hours police interrogation without a lawyer present. Question two. This one's personal. With Roe versus Wade right now, and your involvement in the Bobby Reyes and the Right to Life movement, what are your feelings on things? Well, I've always said this. As a man, I can't have a child. So because I can't bear a child, I never felt it was really my right to have an opinion on abortion. Growing up Catholic and strong Catholic, we were always taught that you're supposed to be pro-life. And I think people thought I was a big pro-life lawyer because of my involvement with Bobby Reyes. Let me explain about Bobby's case briefly. And I'm not going to go on a whole thing about Bobby Reyes because it's a painful subject. And I care about that family. There's a lot of stuff going on in the legislation right now, U.S. and Michigan-wise. Texas is really hitting things hard right now. What I can answer with complete certainty, in Bobby Reyes's case... Sarah Jones and her husband Jose wanted Bobby Reyes to have every option to survive. And the University of Michigan took that option away from them. If we're truly living in a situation when a woman has an option on her own body... I personally feel that option should extend after the child is born. And Sarah Lynn Jones did not have the option to keep fighting for Bobby Reyes' life. So I'm not going to get into Roe v. Wade today, but I will certainly say this. If somebody wants to continue their constitutional rights to be a parent, a medical professional should not dictate that. So just like people would be upset over telling a woman whether she has a right to choose, I also feel a medical professional should not tell a woman when she has a right to go up with her son's life. And I'll leave it at that. Bobby Reyes deserved better. You quote me on that. For three, <laughs> Shiawassee question. You seem to be very protective of Shiawassee. Can you elaborate on your affinity for that county? Yep, I can. Judge Matthew Stewart has taught me to be a better man. Prosecutor Scott Corner has taught me to be a better attorney. Chrissy Lab has taught me how to control specialty courts and advocate for the community. Melissa Bearwith has given a blueprint of how a court's supposed to be run. And other than Marlene Webster, the board of commissioners have taught me how to really be careful what you say on YouTube. <laughs> so, Josh Champlain, amazing journalist. I love Shiawassee County. I do think the Board of Commissioners... I remember when Marks came at me. Yeah, Marks and Root and Garber. Yeah, there's some real issues there, guys. That court and that newspaper are role models for the way things should be. The Board of Commissioners really need 
to evaluate the things they say and do. You guys are not as important as you think you are. Why don't you go to 208 North Shiawassee Street and learn a little bit about class and intellect. That's where the court's located. Oh, here we go. Knew this was coming. Do you feel the media has been fair on the Thomas Hernandez and Dustin Durbin case? Okay. Quick answer is no. I think Tommy Hernandez and Dustin Durbin are innocent kids. And I don't, you know, the person who sent this, I'm not familiar with the email address. And I imagine this could be a setup question where they're trying to, you know, set me up here. Um, I'll say this. Let's talk in hypotheticals. If a group of people have civil litigation going on and no physical evidence, I'd be really concerned the truth could sneak through the cracks there. What I will say, I completely believe in Tommy Hernandez and Dustin Durbin. And I'm going to fight to the death for those two kids. And I'm not going to be apologetic about that. And as far as the media that keeps writing these stories, doing a half-assed job, stay tuned. And here's another Eastern Michigan question. <laughs> Will you be attending any Eastern Michigan University games this season? Only if I could have dinner with John Vela after. Alright, next question. Just two more questions here. <laughs> Are you still part of the movement in Washington County? The movement in Washington County. Okay. Well, I think I know where you're going with this. I'm certainly part of a movement that is going to defend Shatina and Dan Gradiel. I'm certainly part of a movement that wants to see young black kids in Ipsy treat the same way as white kids from Dexter. I'm certainly part of a movement that feels young people deserve Haida and protect their future. As far as some of the people involved in rallies and stuff, I don't think they're really wild about me. I'm sure the color of my skin plays a role in that. You know, there's no question. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say that I wish Shatina was represented by a black lawyer. If you got a black lawyer or a blue, green, or yellow lawyer that's as good as me and wants to take the case for free and fight for justice, let me know. I'll work with them. I hope that answers your question. Last question. Will you run for circuit court judge in Washtenaw County in 2022? Um, well, if anybody who's an enemy of mine does sees my Facebook lives, I can't imagine I would win that election. <laughs> so I, I don't think I'll be running for circuit court judge anywhere. I would want to be a judge the way Judge Matthew Stewart is a judge. Judge Stewart once told me when I told him one of my dreams was to be a judge, he said to me, the type of judge you are is the type of man you are. And that stuck with me. And I have no problem sleeping at night, but I think the type of man I am is a man who's always going to want to fight for the underdog. And I don't know if I'm mature enough to look at things objectively. Um... I'm not as mature or as even keeled as a Matthew Stewart. I do feel, from what I heard, and I'm not saying anything, I've heard Arian Slay may run for circuit court judge. If Arian Slay runs, I gotta imagine I'd probably support Arian. That's a great legal mind right there. If Judge Simpson 
or a Judge Freshour or a Judge Valvo went for Circuit Court Judge, be hard not to support them. The last Circuit Court election um, with Judge Tracy Vanderberg, I mean, she was the perfect candidate to be a judge because I always feel Judge Vanderberg, she's got some Jersey girl in her. She's a badass. She's a great legal mind. She's taught me things and she cared about that community. But she is so objective and she could look at the issue so precisely. I'm not there. I may never be there. I do think in 2022, I'll probably be practicing criminal law. And I'm okay with that. The Jail Visit with attorney Bill Amadeo from McManus and Amadeo. Connect with McManus and Amadeo at McManusAmadeo.com or call 800-392-7311. This is The Jail Visit on Shiawassee Radio. So at Norman Fowl and Krim, remember he told me during my time the Innocence Project, I make too much work. For everyone because you had to do 90 hours in the innocence project that was your criteria and I think I did like 382 hours and a guy who was my roommate who couldn't litigate his way of a wet paper bag who did very little hours and lied about getting the hours he needed fell thought he was a great lawyer great lawyer to be sometimes there's more than meets the eye so I got a D in Krim, and I would retake Krim with another professor, one who actually knew and gave a shit about Krim law. For torts, Charles Palmer, good professor. Professor Palmer used to have the essays answer in four sentences or less. And you know, and torts is like, there's almost like, in my opinion, there's two subparts for your first term. There's intentional torts which is relatively easy, and then you fall off the cliff with negligence. Negligence was a whole different ballgame. I thought Professor Palmer cared. Good professor. Then there was John Taylor for um, Contracts 1. Nice guy. Was his first term teaching. Didn't seem to know a lot, but he seemed to care. And no real problem with him. Study groups were interesting. Because you start to make a lot of different friends. Uh, I think my closest friend would be Brian Lorkey, who's still a close friend today. Brian was like a big brother. Was a retired New Jersey State Trooper. And Brian kind of took me under his wing. Helped me get a new apartment, move out of Washington Apartments. Like, he really looked out for me. And I don't think I would have been as successful in law school if it wasn't for Brian Lorkey. And certainly... My first term of law school was nothing to write home about. Bad time. And I remember I ended up on academic probation. And when you end up on academic probation, you don't get your financial aid till week nine. So you need to figure out how to survive. And back then, first termers got their grades back week one. Eventually, everybody got their grades back week four. So you're checking, checking, checking. And it was a D in Crim, C minus in Contracts 1, and a C in Contracts. And I was sitting on a 1.5 GPA. And I will say that I don't believe Fell read my essays. I don't think anybody really read them. My handwriting was so horrible. Uh, my multiple choice was good, but back then I couldn't type. You had to handwrite. Unless you got an accommodation. 
I remember I went through these bullshit tests to get an accommodation just to type. And when I could type and you could read what the hell I was writing, it's like, oh my god, he made some brilliant points. But here's something I learned moving forward. My first term, my multiple choice across the board was not great. I learned in Cooley and I learned on the bar exam that your multiple choice was like your first impression. The professors put the Scantron in and they knew what your raw score was on the black letter law before they looked at your essays. So if you killed it on your multiple choice, you basically got the sign across on the essays. But I put more time in the essays first term. And if you did bad the multiple choice, your essays were like an uphill battle. My essays were pretty good, but you couldn't read my handwriting. So somebody like Norm Fell could potentially say, I'm not reading this shit. let's give the kid a D or an F, send them back home to New Jersey. So I was on academic probation, remember before finals, I got calls from people in Jersey rooting against me. Don't get my financial aid till week nine the next term. Walls seem to be falling apart. First term was really bad. Second term, Brian Largy helped me get an apartment. He made some calls and I paid to get an apartment at Village Green in Lansing. And Village Green will always have a special place in my heart because Village Green is where things start to turn around for me. I didn't have to worry about my sleeping conditions anymore. It made academics a lot easier. So I moved to a different apartment. I was able to type my essays. I voided my D. So I had a 1.75 because you had the 1.5 in um, contracts and the 2.0 in torts. And if you're under a 2.0, you had two terms to get over that 2.0 to get off academic probation. And I had to meet with Dr. Wilson and I was on academic probation. And she said, well, I told you you weren't going to make it through. So now I'm on a 1.75. I got two terms to get to that 2.0. I used my one void and it was now or never. I already didn't get into Widener. Now I almost failed out my first term at Cooley. And I learned I had dysgraphia, which meant my handwriting, as anybody that knows me, was dreadful. So, second term was coming up, and in second term, we would have contracts too with Professor High. We would have Krim Lowell again, the remix, with Professor Grady Jessup, good man. And Torts too with Professor Mark Dotson, who became a favorite of mine in law school. And I knew at this point, guys, it really wasn't about two terms. I had to get over that 2.0 to really have some breathing room. So I had to kick ass that second term. A lot of pressure there. And I looked at the first term like based on my living conditions and I found out mom was really sick and things were hidden from me. So I was trying to go home and check on her because she was dying of cancer and she lingered around for a while. That's another story that happened during law school. Well, between mom, the living conditions, the drama in Jersey, Norm Fell, there's a lot of things working against me. I look back at first term and I say, okay, well, first term was the beginning of whatever this is. We didn't know it already. It was time to fight. And fighting we would do.
the jail visit with attorney Bill Amadeo from McManus and Amadeo. Connect with McManus and Amadeo at McManusAmadeo.com or call 800-392-7311. This is the jail visit on Shiawassee Radio. Second term, you know, you were on academic probation. So one of the things you had to do on academic probation was meet with the professors who gave you bad grades. And I had to meet with John Taylor, who gave me a C- in Contracts 1. And I had to meet with Norman Fell, who gave me the D in Crim. And John Taylor was nice enough. I mean, I don't think he gave me a fair grade, but he couldn't read my handwriting. That was the problem first term. That, you know, you can't read my essays, so you're going to give me a bad shot. Fell was interesting. Because meeting with Norman Fell... It was like having some nobody tell you that you're not going to make it. Because I've done a lot of crim law work in my life, and I could tell you right now, you don't have what it takes to be a lawyer. And of course I could read your handwriting. Remember, I showed him my essays, and I said, here, can you read that to me? And he tried, he couldn't make it through. So, Fell basically told me, I didn't have what it takes. And because I was making an issue about my handwriting, which of course was bullshit to a lot of people, um, they sent me, with all the other people in academic probation, to Dr. Patricia Williams. I'm not sure what this woman was a doctor in, but she wasn't a lawyer. She made it very clear. Really, in my opinion, one of the most hideous women you've ever seen in your life. And she used to sit there, I'm not a lawyer. But I know what it takes to be a lawyer because I, I know coolie kids. And she sat there and she said to me, well, your Nelson Denny score was horrible. And now you got a 1.5 GPA. You're not going to make it through. And she goes, you know, you should go to trade school. And then she made fun of New Jersey educational system. <laughs> she said in New Jersey, it's this there and that there. I don't even know what she was saying. She goes, so I don't think you're going to make it. And I looked her in the eyes, and I said, trust me, I'm going to get off academic probation. I'm going to make it through cooling. She says, well, that would be nice, but it's nice to have dreams, isn't it? So we had to go to the stupid ARC seminars, the Academic Resource Center. We had to go to the ARC if you were on academic probation and do all these different classes. So in addition to my full course load, I was in the ARC. I think the ARC in my opinion, was one of the most useless endeavors of my career. Because if the ARC taught you differently than your professor taught you, there's a contradiction. And I knew if I was going to make it through law school, what I needed was to type my damn message. You can't read my handwriting. So back then at Cooley, they had this thing called accommodations. And basically, if you paid some psychiatrist $800, you could get extra time. That was the um, scheme, if you would. I didn't need the extra time. I needed to be able to type. So with my accommodation, I had the right to type, which was a huge look in 2005. And surprisingly, when I typed, the grades went way up. Because you could actually read the things I put down on the paper. And the people from Jersey, 
the enemies from Jersey, if you would. I, I was real about my grades. I'm like, look, I don't know if I'm going to make it through. And they said, oh, well, we knew you wouldn't make it. So you got an asshole like Norm Fell. You got somebody who I thought was clueless like John Taylor. Nothing against the guy. He didn't know what the hell he was doing. You got these idiots that are rooting against you. You got Dr. Wilson. And there was this one guy who was a close friend in law school. Uh, Joe Andrews. And Dr. Wilson said Joe Andrews was a star. He just got it quicker. Joe was a natural academic. Um, as a lawyer, if you got two parking tickets and he was your attorney, you're going to walk out with two parking tickets. It wasn't really... He was a JAG officer, which is kind of terrifying because the guy was... I know he did well by Cooley's standards, but man, as a lawyer. But the people that were getting grades at Cooley back then, I didn't understand it, because knowing them in the real world, I mean, they're really kind of stupid. It was very bizarre how that whole thing hit. Second term, I had Crim again, the remix. I had Torts too, and I had Contracts too. Contracts to was Professor High. And Professor High, he kind of checked out. You know, he was fine. No ill will against the man, but he was just kind of going through the motions. The other two professors were special. Mark Dotson. And I haven't really kept up with Mark Dotson, but he helped turn things around for me at Cooley. I'd meet him in his office hours. And he would tell me how, you know, don't worry about that first term. You can do this. He took time. He cared. And what I used to do with Dotson was I used to have my class on, like, Thursday morning. I used to attend another section of his on Friday just to sit in. So I would listen to the material twice. And of course, Dr. Wilson had a problem with that because she said, and I quote, by you sitting twice, you're getting the benefit of two tuitions. Now, I don't know about you guys. I love Mark Dotson. He was a great professor, but it wasn't exactly like a floor seat to the final four. Okay? You had to want to hear the material again and again and again. And certain people would ask certain questions in the classes that would you'd pick up on things. Now we had Grady Jessup. Grady Jessup for Krim. Grady Jessup was an amazing professor. He cared. Went to his office hours. I went to his classes twice a week when I only had to go once. He literally took the time. I went to his office hour one time. And it's usually like a half hour slot. We spent three hours in there going over essays on his own time. The man cared. And to sum up my opinion of Cooley circa 2005, I think Norm Fell was the head of the crim department and Grady Jessup got fired. <laughs> you know, it was amazing. All right, that was episode one of the jail visit guys enjoy your weekend watch some football take care bye
The proceeding was a paid presentation by McManus and Amadeo PLLC. Listeners of this program should contact their attorney to obtain advice with respect to any particular legal matter. No listener should act or refrain from acting on the basis of information within this program without first seeking legal advice from counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. Only your individual attorney can provide assurances that the information and your interpretation of it is applicable or appropriate to your particular situation. Listening to this program using any associated website or related links or resources does not create an attorney-client relationship between the listener and host, contributors, or contributing law firms. All liability with respect to actions taken or not taken based on the contents of this program are hereby expressly disclaimed. You and your loved ones deserve a criminal defense firm that believes that your life and freedom are worth fighting for. Matt McManus, Bill Amadeo, and the McManus and Amadeo team of attorneys, investigators, and case managers will take the lead with a vast knowledge and legal experience across the state of Michigan to get the best possible result for you. Learn more at McManusAmadeo.com. Schedule a free consultation 24-7 by calling 800-392-7311.